0: We maintain then that at the commencement when God raised up Luther and others who held forth a torch to light us into the way of salvation and who by their ministry founded and reared our churches, those heads of doctrine in which the truths of our religion, those in which the pure and legitimate sonship of God and those in which the salvation of men are comprehended were in great measure Obsolete. We maintain that the use of the sacraments in many ways was vitiated and polluted. And we maintain that the government of the church was converted into a species of foul, insufferable tyranny. So says John Calvin in his book, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. The Church.
1: All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is
0: Urban Buritano. John Calvin was a second generation reformer, one who wrote the Uh, famous, or if you're a Roman Catholic perhaps, infamous, institutes of the Christian religion. Uh, John Calvin's legacy lives on, as do many others of the Magisterial Reformation, or perhaps we should call it Reformations, according to some historians. For across all of Europe, the ideas of the Reformation, the glorious recovery of biblical truth, Spread across these nations. Well, as we think on the Reformation in the month of October, and we consider all the ways that God has graciously sustained his church, we see that it is very frequently the case that, as Luther once said, where Christ establishes a church, Satan is quick to come in and establish his own synagogue right nearby, a synagogue of Satan planted by a gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting church. There is a a battle raging in the minds and hearts of every individual man, woman, boy, girl, for biblical truth. And it is easy to be polluted by air, air that sounds even biblical. Years ago, Warren Wiersbe and uh, Chuck Swindoll One of these men once said that the reason that cult groups are so dangerous to the Christian faith is because they use our Christian vocabulary, but not our dictionary. And indeed, such is the case with the Roman Catholic religion. To be clear, all of us probably know Roman Catholic friends, and some, a few perhaps, are, we would say, genuinely Christians, those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, His perfect person and work, and are not in any way trusting in themselves or their own works, but are relying on the grace of God alone for salvation. But this, friends, is the exception and not the rule, and that is in spite of, not because of what their Roman Catholic tradition and their teachers promote and believe. Tragically, There are some today who have tried to blur the lines between the Roman Catholic religion and biblical Christianity. But those of us who want to live under the fear of the Lord, want to honor the Lord and recognize that our God is precise, our God cares about truth, we must think and act biblically and think and act wisely in a manner that pleases our Lord. When you say the word reformation, Many things might come to your mind. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word Reformation. The church historian Nick Needham in his classic, uh, I should say what is becoming a classic, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, says at the outset of his third volume on the Renaissance and the Reformation, quote, The Reformation is the most controversial era in the history of the church. Many would probably agree with Dr. Nick Needham. To some, perhaps many Roman Catholics, they view the Reformation as a time when Protestants promoted schism, promoted division in the true church. Yes, reform was badly needed, some will say, but the length to which the reformers went was way too far. In the view of these Roman Catholic friends, Protestants promoted a radical individualistic, hyper-individualistic reading of the scriptures that has jeopardized tradition, good tradition handed down from the pillar and the buttress of the truth, which is, according to the scriptures, the church. Roman Catholic friends say the Reformers went way too far, and now we should not be surprised that there are thousands, even tens of thousands of denominations where Protestants read the Bible individualistically, and separate from one another again and again and again. They're not bound by tradition. They're not bound by council, They're not bound by common creed. And this is inevitable. Some would call Protestants, we who are Protestants, heretics today in the Roman Catholic tradition. Others, though, would take a less uh, rigid view and say, agreeing with Vatican II, that Protestants, we who are Protestants, are separated brethren which is to say we are misguided even if well-intended. However, Protestants, those of us who are historic Protestants, would agree, yes, Reformation was badly needed in the 15th and the 16th century, even prior to that, because of many corruptions, many excesses, many deviations away from biblical truth in uh, most areas of the church. But we would also say, That the Reformation was glorious because it was a rediscovery, not just for a few people, but for the masses. For many, for the first time, had access to the Scriptures, not in Latin, but in their own vernacular, their own common tongue language. They were able to read the Scriptures or even hear the Scriptures read and understand them in a language common to them. No longer was... The worship service held in a language that meant nothing to them. No longer were there elements happening that they did not make any sense of. But now the scriptures that God breathed truths from the Old and the New Testaments were accessible to them, were able to be heard and understood by them. And they breathed life into these men and women and brought salvation uh, more than at any other time, perhaps in the history of the church. And so for those of us who are Protestants, we look back and we praise God for His kind sovereignty and bringing about the Reformation or Reformations, you might say, across so many parts of Europe that indeed have spread throughout all the ends of the earth and are continuing to spread. The Reformation, as we popularly think of it or conceive it to be, is connected to the doctrines of grace. We know these to be. to look more narrowly, total depravity, unconditional election. We'll get into what these mean one by one later on, perhaps with a line or two. Limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. But it's even more largely connected to the idea of the five solas of the Reformation. Namely, that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and all according to the word of God alone. These solas of the Reformation are the heartbeat of the Reformation, even if they were put into more summary form later on and not during the time of the 15th and the 16th century um, in those exact lang- uh, words, as it were. But what are we today, Protestants, in the 21st century to think of the Reformation? How should we view this? Is the Reformation over? That is a, a conversation that has generated much discussion in recent years. Historian, uh, Church historian uh, Mark Knoll and others have said, yes, the Reformation is over. Functionally saying, yes, it's over. Look at how much we have in common with our Roman Catholic friends. Look how much we share in terms of our views with them. Years ago, James White said that as we see a country in the United States here that is more and more secular, more and more pagan, we will be pushed into conversations with and find what seems to be camaraderie with Roman Catholic friends who share our view of marriage between one man and one woman, who share our view of life and the importance of protecting life, even pre-born life in the womb, precious pre-born girls and boys who are being slaughtered in mass. Praise God for the fact that many Roman Catholic friends are also vigilant and have been in some ways led the way in this country, promoting the rights of precious pre-born girls and boys and stand strong on what biblical marriage is. And yet, And yet, we should not in any way, shape, or form think that because we have commonality with and agree with these Roman Catholic friends on those matters of ethics and morality, that we have then the same gospel. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 says clearly that if I or an angel from heaven come and preach another gospel to you, let him be accursed. And so we are dealing with matters of eternal Heaven, eternal hell, we are dealing with matters of life and death when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ, and we need to be precise, we need to be clear. And sadly, the Roman Catholic tradition and Roman Catholics today, if they are honest and consistent, will say they still hold to the Council of Trent, those councils of the 16th century that denounced justification by faith alone as anathema. If anyone says justification is by faith alone, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed and cut off. And yet with the Apostle Paul agreeing with what God has said in Ephesians 2, we say wholeheartedly, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we wholeheartedly agree with justification by faith alone, because we agree with the Scriptures. We agree with what the Bible teaches. It is the standard of all standards, the norm of all norms. It guides all other authorities. Historic Protestants have not cast out as altogether worthless tradition and teachers, preachers of the Word of God now, we've praised God for the gifts that those things are, but we also recognize they are not infallible. They are not the invincible and errant word of God. Rather, as the Apostle Paul says clearly in the word of God in 2 Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture alone is the only God-breathed source of authority in any person's life. Indeed, there is not another standard to which we can look to except the revealed and written word of God. And so as we think about the Reformation today, we can think about this broadly in a few different categories. We can think about this in terms of the solas of the Reformation. We can think about this in terms of TULIP and the more refined doctrines that have shaped the reformed uh, thought of the Reformation, that led to not only Calvin's Geneva and many others who are now in the streams of Particular Baptists or uh, Confessional Presbyterians, who were also uh, among the Reformed and who in many ways pioneered that. However, probably the best way to consider this is to consider the Reformation then and the Reformation now. The Reformation of the 15th and 16th century was not something that was found in a vacuum, as it were, Rather, in God's sovereignty, in God's care, he had arranged history in such a manner so that not only was there the convergence of the printing press and the invention of the printing press at such a time as the Protestant Reformation was passing out literature and trying to get literature to the uh, masses, And encounter many of these wrong ideas and corrupt ideas. But also you see that the Renaissance was taking place where many scholars, many thinkers were rediscovering the ancient languages. And looking at the original biblical Hebrew, the original biblical Greek of the New Testament. The original biblical Hebrew of the Old Testament. They were seeking to go back to the sources. That was the cry, as it were, of the Renaissance. Ad fontes. Back to the sources, not being content with being told this is the way things are and always have been, not being content with someone else's study, but wanting to go back to the sources to search afresh, to look and to see what the sources have said concerning a variety of matters, not only the scriptures, but others. Uh, Consider Aristotle, consider Plato, consider some of these other Uh, sources, consider the ground of philosophy, consider modern science. All these things were being freshly looked at by Renaissance scholars. And indeed, when we look at church history, we see these things are often paired, the Renaissance and the Reformation. In God's con-sovereignty, again, we see the need for the Reformation then was connected to the fact that many read the original writings of the Scriptures and found the church in the state that it was in, in the 15th and 16th century, wanting. But there were those who we might call pre-Reformation reformers. John Wycliffe is one of them. His dates are 1328 to 1384. He was a British churchman. And a translator, educated at Oxford, known by his biographer Herbert Workman as the evening star of scholasticism and the morning star of the Reformation. According to the renowned British churchman J.C. Ryle, Wycliffe is, quote, the forerunner and first beginner of the Protestant Reformation in England. What did Wycliffe do that led to such incredible titles given to him? Well, Wycliffe was a brilliant energetic and thoughtful scholar on a variety of subjects, including science and philosophy, but also scripture. 43 years after his death, he was so hated by Roman Catholic officials that his body was dug up and he was tossed into the river, burned and tossed, ashes thrown into the river swift. Fascinating how much he was hated to go to such lengths. But he was a man who was thoughtful, he was an independent thinker, and he would not just take things because they were handed to him. He wanted to think and use the mind that God had given him. One scholar wrote an article on Wycliffe about 20 years ago and explored the idea, is Wycliffe also the morning star, not only the Reformation, but of science itself, because of how thoughtful and brilliant Wycliffe was? Well, Wycliffe lost his life, as did the Czech reformer, or pre-Reformation reformer, Jan Hus. Jan Hus was put to death and burned. If you go to Prague, the Czech Republic, you will see, and I've been there, you will see um, a statue, a giant statue right there in the middle of downtown Prague of Jan Hus, once hated and despised for challenging the clergy and the, and the churches and the corruption found in the church. And desiring for the scriptures to be studied afresh. Desiring for consistency and harmony between what the church taught and what the scriptures taught. Well, obviously, anytime hypocrisy is called out. Anytime power is disrupted by those who have it and are comfortable and do not want to change. And do not want reformation, particularly reformation according to the word of God. There will be literal Uh, Life to pay. And Jan Hus and John Wycliffe were two who were pre Reformation reformers who later inspired others like Luther himself, probably the most popular of all the reformers, that German monk who wrote famously the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses uh, famously have as uh, the very first line the idea that this is not out of some scholarly pursuit alone. But rather, this is out of a love for truth and a desire to elucidate it. A love for truth and a desire to elucidate it. That was what guided Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk who was trained by Roman Catholics who visited Rome and found himself surrounded by people who he found were caught up in superstition. And yet, one of his uh, mentors had him read the scriptures and it was Romans in chapter 1. Verse seventeen that really drove home Romans uh, rather uh, Luther's understanding of the Reformation. We read in Romans chapter one, these glorious words, 117. This is the new American Standard Bible, the 1995 Version. Luther came across for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man, Shall live by faith. Well, this opened the door to Luther, who was trying hard to orient himself to a works based, man centered salvation. How would I ever be justified, declared righteous in the sight of a holy God? God is holy, 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 as Isaiah 6 tells us. How can I, a sinner, be righteous in the eyes of this holy and righteous living God? Luther, as uh, one a historian puts it, would often come and confess to a priest, and the priest would tell him, get out of here, Luther. Come back when you actually have something worth confessing. Uh, Luther was more of a priest and more rigorous in his discipline than many others, and yet he could not find any peace with God. He could not find this sense of, am I accepted before a holy God? How can I know? What is my assurance? And yet he came across Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, gloriously, all of us who are in Jesus Christ, we recognize that as Romans 5.1 says Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have assurance not in ourselves, not in our own works, not in what we have done for God, but in what he has done for us. This is what was freshly discovered by Luther and by John Calvin and by so many others, first and second generation reformers of the 15th and 16th century And what, praise be to God, has driven the true church of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. That namely, by God's grace alone, we are saved, not because we have done something for God, but because He has graciously sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to save us, sinners like us. So much so that God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The questions concerning how one can be right with God are the most important in the world. These are not simply theoretical, fun things to discuss. These are real matters of life and death. Men and women, boys and girls, trying to find peace with God, trying to earn God's favor every day, taking great lengths to earn. God's favor to know, does God really love me? Has God accepted me? Will I be accepted into the heavenly kingdom of God when I die? What happens when I die? These are real questions, live questions that all of us as image bearers of the living God face, sometimes daily. And the image bearer, the man, the woman you see at the grocery store, as you're driving, your neighbor, whose hand you shake. Every single person will give an account of their life, Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel, for every idle word that we speak. And the truth is that apart from a mediator, apart from Jesus, that would be a terrifying day for all of us indeed. It is not, friends, good news for a sinner who has no mediator, who has no Savior. To hear the news, Jesus is Lord. A few years ago, N.T. Wright Uh, and others have suggested that that is the summary of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Now, of course, that is an essential and a core part of the gospel. Jesus is Lord, yes and amen, but that is not enough. That is not sufficient. That is not biblically sufficient, certainly. Jesus is Lord, and he is Savior, and he is the Son of God who came and took on flesh, who lived the perfect life that none of us could live, who died in our stead, paid the penalty for our sins as the great a hymn says My sins, not in part but the full, were nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. And so we celebrate and we praise God for the fact that there is a Savior who is also our mediator, and as we are told in first Timothy in chapter uh, two, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We love the glorious news of The fact that there is a God in heaven who came to seek and to save the lost. For we know that as Romans 3 tells us, there is no one who seeks God. That's a quote from uh, a psalm. There is no one who seeks God, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. Rather, we are all corrupt. We are all wicked and in need of a Savior. And praise God that our Lord and Savior, our Creator, is our King and is our Savior and has come and drawn near to us. This, friends, is the precious truth discovered afresh, rediscovered afresh, that reoriented the hearts of the reformers. We see very clearly that in the scriptures, there are um, those who would come and twist the word of God. We know that in the book of Acts, there are warnings that some even among you, among you will arise false teachers. Imagine being in that room and thinking, am I among these false teachers And sure enough, just as the Apostle Paul warned, there would be those who would come and preach a false gospel, undermine the sufficient and perfect work of Jesus Christ, distract us and try to put us back onto some kind of a works-based system, a man-centered system of earning the approval and favor of God. But friends, this is an impossible endeavor. Romans 8, 8 tells us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is a hopeless endeavor. You are helpless. You are hopeless on your own. You are, as Ephesians 2 puts it, dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the spiritual life that you once had, apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit who caused you to be born again, who blew upon you new life, who gave you life when you were dead. And this, friends, is the good news of the Reformation that is really the good news of Scripture. To the glory of God. When we think about the Reformation then versus the Reformation today, not much has changed, and sadly, in many ways, things have gotten worse. A few practical applications concerning uh, the darkness that the church was once uh, largely under, not completely under. We don't believe uh, what some uh, friends would say who are a part of cult groups like um, Mormonism. Uh, Joseph Smith, famously, you might remember, uh, had an angel appear to him and said, uh, he he asked this angel, which of the denominations should I join? And the angel uh, told Joseph Smith, none of them, they're all corrupt, they're all perverted. We don't believe that. We don't believe that the entire church was totally polluted, totally corrupted. God always had his who had not bowed the knee to Baal. The Lord has always preserved his own. There are always those who have truly trusted in him. And the Scriptures have been preserved by God's grace so that God's people have access to the Word of God that are sufficient, that are necessary, and that can guide them and lead them into all truth that is necessary for salvation and eternal life. However, friends, when we think of the Scripture's warnings concerning false teachers, the Scripture's warnings concerning our enemy, that ancient foe, The devil himself, when we think about Scripture's warning concerning our own flesh indwelling sin that lingers in the way that we can easily be self-deceived, and our hearts indeed are deceitful above all things and sick, who can know them? According to Jeremiah 17, 9, we affirm this. We know that we are easily self-deluded, that our sinful flesh still likes to hear the folly and wickedness of flattery concerning how good we are. And yes, praise be to God, the Spirit convicts us concerning this sin and leads us away from that unrighteous thought. But we realize we are bombarded by errors. In the 21st century, we are surrounded by false teaching, and we have access to false teaching unlike ever before. You can pull up your phone, and within moments, you can find Thousands of false teachers. You type in Christian podcasts that come up today and you will find prosperity gospel preachers, air quotes, and teachers who are false teachers, who undermine the sufficiency of God's word, who offer people something that is less than the biblical gospel, less than biblical Christianity, It uses so many of our same words, so many of the same vocabulary. They're not Roman Catholics, but indeed they are a perversion of what the historic Protestants sought to recover, and we ought to push back against them just as much as we ought to push back against the Roman Catholic religion today. So how should we think through these matters? A few applications. Martin Luther, in his exchanges with the Pope's theologian, Sylvester, and I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name. Uh, I believe it's uh, Prioros, Prioras, but this is the Pope's theologian. He read um, his work on papal absolutism. That—that that is the idea of the supremacy of the pope. And he said that this man, Sylvester uh, Prioras, Pope's theologian, spoke with such bravado, according to one author, that Luther called it a hellish manifesto. There is still this false reverence today for the Pope, the so-called Vicar of Christ on earth. And sadly, many people give this reverence to this man, um, and they have not changed. Even the most conservative of the Roman Catholics today, who seem to me the most biblical, still have this odd superstitious view concerning the Pope. There is a need for reformation today when it comes to people's understanding of the fear of God and not the fear of man. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist um, Theological Seminary in Louisville, once spoke to a group of Mormons. And there he said, I do not believe we are going to heaven together, but we may be going to jail together someday. And indeed, I think the same could be true concerning Roman Catholic friends. We can say, friends, your errors concerning the gospel, your errors concerning this false allegiance you have to a man, namely the Pope, are wrong. They're wrong-headed. You are headed for hell if you do not believe that you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Trust in Jesus. His work on the cross, it is sufficient. There is no other need for any other mediator but Christ alone. We can say that to someone, we should say that to someone who we love who's a Roman Catholic. And we can also recognize, as Al Mohler said, we might be going to prison with these people. There might be many opportunities for prison ministry, for evangelism to Roman Catholic friends. But we dare not say, because they seem to say and affirm the same things we believe concerning salvation or sin or lordship of Jesus, for the Savior being Jesus, that therefore they are saved. That is not our role. The Holy Spirit is the one. Uh, he alone is the one who offers assurance through the word. And yet, we have to be those who are discerning and promote in our Roman Catholic friends' hearts and minds the fact that they will be confronted with the living God. And they cannot stand on what the Pope has said, what their Roman Catholic family members have said. They will stand on the truth. Or they will die on the truth. They will die in Adam or they will die in Jesus Christ. It is very sad today when you uh, go through Roman Catholic cemeteries. Recently, I did this with a dear brother from our church's wife. We, were, um, we had laid her body to rest in a uh, Roman Catholic uh, cemetery. That was the one that their family chose. Um, and so we went to this Roman Catholic cemetery. Uh, she was a Protestant herself, but she was in this Roman Catholic cemetery And as you drive throughout this Roman Catholic Cemetery, you see so many um, just high language, exalted language to Mary. And it is wicked, friends. The Mariolatry, that is the idolatry to Mary that seems so pervasive in the 15th and 16th century, it continues today just as strong. It was so sad to read, uh, Mary, Mother of Heaven, Mary queen of our salvation, Mary, dispenser of all grace. We could go on and on. There were so many of these different phrases. Mary, full of grace and truth. Friends, these are titles reserved for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It ought to grieve us that anyone would ascribe these titles to another, even to Mary, and we can say at the same time, yes, praise God, Mary was blessed to carry our Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, but she too needed a Savior. That is one of those errors in Roman Catholic theology today. Another error today in Roman Catholic theology that has continued throughout is their understanding of or scriptural truth beyond the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. For the first time in history, the Roman Catholic tradition canonized extra-biblical, deuterocanonical revelation that has given them their biblical basis for things like purgatory. What came out of the 15th and 16th century was a new denomination, and it was not Protestantism as the popular narrative goes. Rather, it was the Roman Catholic religion. The Roman Catholic religion emerged out of there. And I know some will say, how can you say that? Well, I would say that even though the post-apostolic patristic church is a mixed bag, I I agree with that. Roman Catholics can find some of of their views warranted, not all of them, certainly, not most of them, I would say, in some of the patristic fathers. But Protestants are on much more solid ground when it comes to the early church post-apostolic patristic fathers. We see justification by faith alone. We see scripture alone. Uh, Pervasively throughout. Again, not consistently, not all across the board. We do see it um, regularly throughout the Patristic Fathers. But they're not ultimately our final guide. Scripture is. But what you see in the 15th and 16th century are Roman Catholic men coming together and canonizing Scripture that was never canonized ever. And so giving exalted status... Equal with the Old and New Testament, two books like 2 Maccabees and others, all the deuterocanonical books, the Apocrypha. And we see coming out of that, things like purgatory. Now I know some will point back to other points in church history to say, look, purgatory is here, purgatory is there, but there's no biblical basis for purgatory. None whatsoever. When you watch debates that James White and others have done on purgatory, it is clear who the victor is objectively james white demolishes those who uh, would say that there's a biblical basis for purgatory there's not and it's there, there's barely a basis for it historically but i have uh, much beef with those who would say and agreeing with robert bellarmine that counter reformation roman catholic scholar years ago said the most damnable of all protestant heresies is That doctrine, that heretical doctrine of assurance. Bellarmine held that because Protestants were so confident they were going to heaven, this was damnable. Of course, when we come across Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we come across verses that tell us, like in in John chapter 5, that those who who believe in the Son have life. When we read John 3:36, the one who believes in the Son has life, but the one who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When we read all these clear texts that tell us of our assurance, not in our work, but in the work of Christ, in what God has done for us by His grace alone. We are right to say, yes, I'm confident that I have peace with God. Yes, I'm confident that I will go to heaven, not because I am a good person, but because God is good. He does not mislead his people. He tells the truth and God can never lie. But Bellarmine, when he says that assurance is the most damnable of all Protestant heresies, I I take issue with that because Rome has their own version of assurance, and it's on a shaky foundation. It's on a unbiblical foundation. In talking with Roman Catholic friends, I have found, and maybe you have found this too, that they are, many of them at least, banking not on the fact that they are in Christ and are new creations and will stand before God, and because of his grace, because of his goodness, they will be declared innocent, guilt, uh, guiltless, forgiven, cleansed, welcome into my heavenly kingdom because of my w- the work of my son. No, it's not that assurance. Rather, it's an assurance that, well, at least I'm going to go to purgatory. I have heard friends tell me that. Roman Catholic neighbors have told me this. At least I'm going to go to purgatory. And then heaven. Well, at least there's purgatory. Friends, that is damnable. That is truly damnable. Bellarmine misses it completely. If you are giving someone a false assurance that there's a place where you'll you'll be purged of your sins, and then you'll inherit eternal life, but for a while you might have to be purged. There are so many people, millions perhaps upon millions, who are banking on the fact that, yes, I might not be good enough for heaven, but at least I'm not going to go to hell. At least there's a purgatory and a place where I'll be purged, and then I'll go to heaven. John MacArthur years ago said that purgatory is the Roman Catholic doctrine, the unbiblical doctrine on which the rest of the superstitions are held together. Now that might go too far and other Protestants might take issue with that, even if they agree with the fact that purgatory is indeed unbiblical and there's no basis for it. But MacArthur's getting at something important. You can actually have a lot of power over someone if you tell them that there's an assurance of purgatory As long as you do X, Y, or Z, as long as you um, pray this certain way, come and confess your sins. But uh, years ago, uh, there was a Together for the Gospel um, breakout session with the Australian, um, I believe it's an Anglican, Peter Jensen. And he noted some things concerning the papacy that I think we have to deal with today, namely that the papacy actually promotes... A threefold blasphemy against the living God. All three persons of the triune God are blasphemed by the papacy, both in its conception historically in the 15th and 16th century and even today. Well, how does he arrive at that conclusion? Uh, There's a short clip that um, you can find. And he'll say it much more articulately than I do. But Peter Jensen gets after the fact that when you consider all three titles or just three of the titles for the Pope today, we have a Pope itself that comes from the word Papa, means father. But the scripture, as Jensen points out, tells us that we should call no man father. You have one father, your father in heaven. It's a blasphemy against God the Father. Jensen goes on to point out that the word pontiff, Uh, means bridge and the bridge between God and man as we know from scripture is Jesus Christ there's only one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus the apostle Paul told Timothy in the scriptures so blasphemy to take on the name pontiff the idea that you are a bridge between God and men and then vicar the vicar of Christ on earth what does vicar mean? It's connected to this idea of advocate. The vicar of Christ on earth is not the pope of the Roman Catholic tradition, friends. It is the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. And so there is the threefold blasphemy that Jensen so helpfully framed. Blasphemy against God the Spirit. Blasphemy against God the Son. Blasphemy against God the Father. That is today held by modern-day Romanists. We have to push back strongly out of our love for them and say, Call no man Father except your Heavenly Father, and say, There is only one vicar of Christ on earth, namely God the Spirit, and to say, The pontiff is Jesus Christ alone. He alone is the mediator. When we think about our relationship to Roman Catholics, how should we engage them? To close, I think through this, we should be full of grace and truth, just as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. We should always be those who are prepared to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is within us, as 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 tells us, but to do so with gentleness and reverence. Yes and amen. But far too many Protestants, in my observation, are desiring to just lump all Roman Catholics in as Christians who are born again, as those who, let's not agree or disagree about minor Things. We're not talking here about minor things, friends. We're talking about major things. Major things that in the 15th and 16th century the Reformers understood and recognized to be major, that Protestants have historically recognized to be major. We're talking about the very definition of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and so we cannot treat that lightly. We're talking about someone who would claim arrogantly titles for himself, blasphemous titles for himself and promote a false gospel that promotes false assurance for people that desperately need clarity and desperately need light. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavik once said, to reject Christian orthodoxy is itself most dogmatic. And uh, contemporary pastor Michael Foster once noted that it is not the one who clings to and holds to historic Christian truth, who is the divisive schismatic. Rather, it is the one who swerves away from historic biblical truth, from Christian orthodoxy, who is the schismatic. Rome promotes schism every single day. And Romanists need to repent of their sins. Romanists need to turn and afresh revisit the scriptures and study the Old and the New Testaments, and examine the teachings of their church in light of Holy Scripture. They will see time and time again that it is only Scripture that is God-breathed, our only source of God-breathed revelation. They will see, even though they misuse it, that yes, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, but where do we learn about the church being the pillar and the buttress of the truth? In the Scriptures. We will see that there is a prior revelation that comes before, as it were, the people of God are formed, namely the revelation of God, the revelation of God in recorded scripture given to us so that we would know what to norm everything else off of tradition, councils, teachers, even those who are venerated, who've helped us and blessed us and prayed for us need to be examined in light of the word of God. We cannot let our traditions get in the way of the truth. And out of love for Roman Catholic friends, we should engage them. Winsomely, yes. Lovingly, yes. Patiently, yes. With a listening ear. Being just as James tells us, full of a desire to listen and quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Yes and amen. Good principles for how you should engage with Roman Catholics. But do not give them a false assurance And pat them on the back and and say, praise God, and call them brother. Certainly, again, there are a few, even perhaps more than we know, so some who are genuinely born-again Christians, but the Spirit of God will lead the people of God out of a place of error, away from false teaching. Years ago, when I was pastoring in another church, I saw this happen. A lady who, for 50 years, was a part of a Roman Catholic church and uh, was caught up in that tradition. She was an Italian lady. She had gone to this same Roman Catholic parish for 50 years. She had family and friends and memories, all these stories from this church. But the Spirit of God led her away from that place of air. And for a while, she was going in the morning to a Roman Catholic parish and in the afternoons, or I should say in the later mornings, rather, to a Protestant church where the gospel was being preached. And finally, she broke away from that entirely. It took time. It took a few years, and she was baptized as a believer. And praise be to God, now she evangelizes to her Roman Catholic family. And yes, she's uh, lost a lot of friends, and it's been hard, and there's been a cost. But the truth is always costly. And following the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus will be costly. Even Jesus himself said, If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. He said that in the Gospel of John. So we ought to be those who realize that, yes, there is a a cost that Roman Catholics will pay, especially as they seek to uh, leave that Roman Catholic tradition and if they do become born again. And we should tell them, though, with with gladness and with a sense of confidence that, uh, Dear friend, um, this is the way to freedom. And in Jesus Christ, there is true freedom. There is hope and hope eternal. There is assurance, not assurance that I or another man or Protestant tradition will give you, but assurance that is found as the Spirit of God through the Word of God convicts you concerning the fact that you are a child of God, forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, at peace with the living God, not fearful of the day you die, but confident that God is good and God is faithful and will make good on His promises. And so we must be those who represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and adorn the gospel um, by our love, by our deeds, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, as the uh, Apostle Paul says in Ephesians in chapter 4. Sadly, there are many who promote heirs today still. There are many who are uh, glad to say uh, Romanists uh, have the, the true faith that we are Um, those, they would say, the Romanists would say, we are those who have our succession directly traced back to Peter. And there are many who have debunked that time and time again. I encourage you to check out the resources by um, William Webster. And um, uh, Bill Webster's got a great site that that can debunk many of those things. And uh, others have written on this as well, James White. But one of the things we should realize, friends, is we do not have to be fearful of Roman Catholic arguments, appeals to tradition, the you know beautiful architecture, this scholar who converted, that scholar who converted. Uh, we know that there are many who have left the Roman Catholic uh, Church, many who are not only lay people, but priests. Years ago in 1994, Banner of Truth um, uh, wrote a, or I should say produced and put out a, a great little book uh, called Far from Rome, Near to God Testimonies of 50 Converted Catholic Priests. And I urge you to check that out. Just wonderful to read of uh, how the gospel of God's grace, as revealed in the scripture, uh, ultimately guided those who were immersed deeply within uh, Romanism. Uh, Chris Castaldo is also a pastor who left um, uh, his Roman Catholic, Italian Roman Catholic family. He's written some things on Roman Catholicism as well. Greg Allison's another modern-day Protestant scholar, church historian, and, uh, and systematic theologians who's written some things on um, Roman Catholicism. Those are all worth checking out as well. But as those who are uh, fully aware of our weaknesses, our frailties, our forgetfulness, our weaknesses, uh, friends, let us be those who are fresh Do not stop studying the scriptures. And like the noble Bereans in the book of Acts, we we search the scriptures to see that these things are so. We do that in our own Protestant tradition and where any Protestant church, pastor, teacher swerves from the word of God and refuse to repent when uh, called upon to do so. uh, Yes, we recognize that that reformation is continuing to happen. We don't go in eager to divide ourselves from The church that we belong to, we go in with a sense of the scriptures, they are supreme. And the scriptures are that sole authority that we appeal to. And we approach the scriptures humbly, studiously, carefully, wanting to understand the meaning uh, with the recognition that we might get it wrong sometimes. But the Spirit of God through the Word of God does bring about that needed reformation, both in individual Christian lives and in entire churches, entire nations. And that work is still continuing today, not only in the United States, uh, but indeed around the world. And it's happening to the praise and honor of our God. So let us be those committed to the doctrines of uh, grace. Let us be those committed to the solas of the Reformation, which again are not man made, man contrived, but rooted in the Word. And as the Scriptures tell us concerning our God, He will give His glory to no other. And so let us give Him the glory by pointing to his lordship, by pointing to his salvation that is found in his son. And uh, praise be to God, we have the joy of serving this king and one day meeting him and seeing him face to face when faith becomes sight.
1: Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers.